Um, but tonight, uh, we're going to uh, talk about um, really a, a topic, a couple of topics that are really uh, prevalent in our uh, community at large. Um, and, and as we have approached this equip series to talk about topics that are facing our community, are facing our nation, this one kind of lies behind the scenes a little bit more, a little bit more so than in government or racism or gender. And, and I want to start by saying tonight that if you are here and you're experiencing deep, dark depression or loneliness or, or panic attacks, that I would say a lot less to you than I'm about to say tonight. If you were going through that, I wouldn't come at you with definitions and facts. I would, I would be with you and be near to you, and we, and we would work through it together. But tonight we're going to spend the majority of our time building a foundation centered on a biblical worldview for how we think about anxiety and depression. In order to think and talk about anxiety and depression rightfully, we have to make sure we are defining them properly and looking at how they fit into their larger framework. But why do we need to address this? Why does the church need to talk about anxiety and depression? Why can't we just leave it to psychologists or psychiatrists or mental health professionals? There's a lot of reasons. First, the church needs to address this because these problems are becoming more and more prevalent among us, especially in our children. Anxiety is the most common mental illness that you can be diagnosed with today in the United States. 40 million adults, which is 18% of the adult population in the United States, are diagnosed with, a, with anxiety each year. Major depressive disorder affects 16.1 million adults in the United States each year, which is almost 7% of the population. These percentages almost double if you look at it between 13 and 18-year-olds. These are prevalent issues. We need to address this because people are hurting deeply among us, and we don't know. They're hurting in their bodies physically and in their souls spiritually. And our God cares about our struggles. He cares about our physical pain, our spiritual pain, and our weakness. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. We need to address this because we have believed the lie. Americans have believed the lie that these are not spiritual issues. That these issues fall under the realm of medical care only. We have believed the lie that the Bible does not address these issues sufficiently. And this has led us to interpret things about who we are apart from God and apart from his word. Christian, you need to know that your pastors are equipped to walk through these things with you. It's not just for the mental health professional. Your pastor's actually called to walk through this with you. 
They're equipped to do so because they're ministers of the word. And that doesn't mean just preaching and teaching. Your pastors are called to shepherd you and encourage you and disciple you and exhort you and train you and counsel you. These are common issues and your pastors are able and they're willing. And there are millions of people in our country who are hurting and they don't know where to turn for help and the church has gone silent on these issues. And people are hurting. We have to talk about these things. We have to help one another. We've already seen how God cares about every single one of our afflictions. And Christian, you are called to care about these things as well. You are called to bear one another's burdens. You are called to weep with those who weep. You are called to be an instrument in the hands of the Most High God to speak into the lives of broken people. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Paul is talking to the congregation at large. He's not just talking to pastors and elders. He's talking to, to all of them. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's what you're called to do. These things are hard. These things are not easy. All of us, every Christian informally, is to counsel alongside the pastors who do so formally or authoritatively as they administer the word. And something that we want to do, one of my goals tonight and in the coming weeks is to equip you to know how to counsel your friends through this, your family through this. When you go and get coffee with a friend, and they share with you something that they're going through in their marriage. You're counseling them. When you get in the car with your teenager after school, and they share with you that, that they went through something hard, or they're going through something, you're, you're counseling them. And we want to help you learn how to do this biblically. We want to equip you to do so. So let's turn to depression and anxiety. These things are, these are things that we talk about a lot, right? We kind of just throw them out there. And yet they're also one of those things that, that we don't really know how to talk about it. Is it a sickness? Is it a disease? Is there sin involved? What do we do about medicine? Where do we turn to for help? There are many within the Christian community who will strictly call the depression a disease. It's something that happens to you. It's a sickness that comes upon you. It's outside of your control. The same goes for anxiety. Others will say that depression and anxiety, though there are other factors involved, will always involve sin. So you have this spectrum, right? You have this spectrum of, of people who want to call it sin and people who want to call it sickness. And many of us within this room are going to land differently upon that spectrum based upon what we've been taught and what we've experienced. And there are people that I greatly respect that land differently on this spectrum and sometimes land a little bit outside my comfort. And I respect these people greatly and they're coming at it biblically and they're striving to be godly. What we do not want to do is called sickness sin. 
And we do not want to call sin sickness. Doing either of those things is going to be extremely destructive. We have differing views on these things because we've had differing experiences and we've gathered differing, sometimes contradicting information. Many of us have never really gathered information about this. We don't even, we haven't really thought about it. We have our view of what depression is like based on an antidepressant commercial or a Netflix documentary or a website. And I want us to consider these things. Anxiety, depression, suicide, without being quarrelsome. We're going to address some things that are going to sting for some of us. We may talk about some things that are contradictory to what you have been taught or to what you believe about these things. But what I want to challenge each and every one of us is to make sure we are striving to think about these things biblically. How do we think about these things? How do we think about depression in light of who God is? How do we think about anxiety in light of sin, in light of being a fallen creature? How do we think about depression in relation to salvation and what Christ has accomplished for us? This is what I want to equip you to do. My goal tonight is that you will leave here better able to do that than when you walked in. And another one of my main goals in these next couple of weeks is to show you that the Word of God not only addresses these issues, but that it addresses it sufficiently. It is sufficient in how it addresses depression and anxiety. So two main texts on Scripture, 2 Timothy 3 and Hebrews 4. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, we're all familiar with it. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what do I mean when I say that Scripture is sufficient in how it addresses it. Sufficiency means that you have all the divine words necessary to please and obey God in every circumstance of your life. I'll say that one more time. Sufficiency of Scripture means that you have all the divine words necessary to please and obey God in any circumstance of your life. So if you're a plumber, the Bible doesn't tell you how to properly set up a sink, right? That'd be kind of weird. But it does tell you how to please and obey God while you go to work and while you set up that sink. Just like the Bible does not fully explain to us where depression might come from, it does tell us how to please and obey God through and during our depression. The Bible is not exhaustive, right? It's not an encyclopedia. However, it is enough for salvation and life and faith and practice. Sufficiency does not suggest that you're going to find uh, every answer in the Bible to every question you would ever want to know. But it does mean that it tells us everything 
we need to know about what matters most. And this means that only the word of God applied to hearts and lives is truly going to bring about change. My words are not sufficient to help someone. If, I, if someone comes in and I'm counseling them, and I'm telling them this is Ace's advice, that holds no authority. No authority over them. But if I am counseling them underneath the authority of the word, and I'm speaking the word into their lives, that holds authority. This is what we mean when we talk about sufficiency. My experiences are not sufficient to help someone. Social sciences are not sufficient to, to determine the problem of man. These things can be helpful, and God uses them, and he uses them greatly. But they're not enough. And this also means that you cannot say, or that you should not say, but you don't understand my circumstance. You don't understand the kind of depression that I'm going through. You're talking about those people over there who are going through that kind of depression. I'm experiencing something like this over here, and it's different. You just don't understand. Sufficiency of Scripture means that if someone is counseling you using the Word of God, that they understand your circumstance sufficiently to help you. Is empathy helpful? Yes. Is empathy necessary? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And even though medicine may be necessary, good, and helpful, medicine will not show you how to please and obey God. Psychology cannot determine, cannot discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart. The word of God only discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. So let's see how this plays out in something that we talk about a lot. It's thrown out there a lot nowadays, mental health. And before we, we define mental health, we need to, I need to um, give you guys a couple of definitions that I think are going to help you um, as we uh, go forward in the next couple of weeks. Psychiatry. Psychiatry is the branch of medicine focused on the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of mental, emotional, and behavioral disorders. Psychology is the scientific study of the human mind and its functions, especially those affecting behavior in a given context. Okay, so there's a difference there. Generally speaking, a psychiatrist is able to prescribe medicine, and a psychologist, generally speaking, is not. That differs between state to state, if, if I'm understanding that correctly. That's generally how it works. So what does it mean to be mentally healthy? If I had to ask you that right now, if we were one-on-one, -on -one, what would you say? What does it mean to be mentally healthy? According to the World Health Organization, mental health is a state of well-being in which an individual realizes his or her own abilities, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively, and is able to make contribution to his or her society. According to American Psychiatric Association, mental health is the foundation for emotions, thinking, communication, learning, resilience, and self-esteem. These are not horrible definitions. They make some good observations about things, right? 
But what's the underlying problem with these definitions? You cannot truly cope with the normal stresses of life apart from God. You cannot have your, your emotions, you cannot handle your emotions properly apart from God. You will have a prideful view of yourself or you will have a false humility of yourself if you seek out self-esteem and worldly manners apart from God. You're either going to be prideful or you're going to be falsely humble. What can be the greater danger of definitions from organizations like these? They don't stop at the observational level. When I say that, I mean that they interpret their observations. And that's where we have to be careful. Because as a whole, okay, as a whole, they are not interpreting man through the lens of being made in the image of God. As a whole, they're not interpreting man as fallen in sin or in need of a savior or as an eternal embodied soul. Now, I know what you're thinking. Common grace, right? Isn't there common grace through these things? There's common grace in psychiatry and psychology and all these things, right? Yes, absolutely. We can learn a lot through the observations of these things. God uses them. But we need to be aware when things like psychology are interpreting man through a lens that is hostile to God, that hates God. My goal, my goal is not to get up here and bash psychology or psychiatry or anything like that. The intentions of psychologists are to help people. I know that. The church has been greatly helped by Christian, Christian psychiatrists. Greatly helped. But you need to be aware when your child is opening their textbook, a psychology textbook, that psychology in general was born by trying to interpret man without God. Is that just neutral? It's not. We must get our view of man and emotions and our greatest problem from the word of God. We must. And that does not mean that you have to give up science. Jay Adams, if you, if you talk to me enough, you're going you're gonna to hear his name. He's the leading figure of the biblical counseling movement. He actually just passed away last year. He really committed his life to putting counseling back into the local church for things like depression and anxiety. He says this, I do not wish to disregard science, namely psychology and psychiatry, but rather I welcome it as a useful adjunct for the purposes of illustrating, filling in generalizations with specifics, and challenging wrong human interpretations of scripture, thereby forcing the student to restudy scriptures. Do you guys want uh, my definition of uh, mental health? It's just it's one word. Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. Christ is the foundation for emotions, thinking, 
communication, learning, resilience, and self-esteem. We have the standard for what mental health looks like before us in the person of Jesus Christ. The mentally healthy are not those who are really, really successful and really smart. The mentally healthy are not those who are really outgoing and liked or who contribute the most to society or have the highest self-esteem. The mentally healthy are those who are being transformed by the renewal of their minds into Christ-likeness. Romans 12.2. The mentally healthy are those who are renewed in the spirit of their minds, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4. The mentally healthy are those who can be sad and depressed and troubled and Christ-like. We learn how to do these things Christianly. You are never going to be truly mentally healthy until you are spiritually healthy. Until you're born again and are being sanctified into the image of Christ. And that does not mean that once you are spiritually healthy, that you will never suffer mentally. You will. It does mean that once we are spiritually healthy, we become free to suffer mentally and still display emotional and mental health while we are sanctified into the image of Christ. It means that we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9. We cannot buy into these anti-Christian worldviews that put forth this abstract view of emotional health. And it's really an abstract view of spiritual health. The world's view and understanding of mental health has greatly affected how we view grieving and being sad and suffering. This had a direct impact upon it. And it's not good. Sadness has been completely lost in our culture. I mean, it really has. So the diagnostic to somebody with like a, like a lisp like me can't say this. The diagnostics statistical manual. So I'm going to refer to it as the DSM. That's just going to help us all out, right? It's a criteria of diagnosing mental illnesses, okay? So the DSM doesn't look to, to um, address causes. They don't say that this is what causes depression or this is what causes anxiety. It says this is, uh, if you're experiencing these symptoms, that you can be diagnosed with these things, okay? Consider the DSM treatment of a widow. It used to be that if your spouse passed away, you were given two months to recover. If after two months you were still experiencing symptoms, you could be diagnosed with depression. Therefore, get put on an antidepressant. In their most recent edition of the DSM, they took the qualification for widows away. What is fundamentally going on? They're saying that you are not experiencing normal sadness, that you're not experiencing normal responses to life in a fallen world. You're experiencing disordered sadness. Five months into into our marriage, 
um, my wife and I experienced a miscarriage. And being pregnant at the time, finding out that we were pregnant was not something that we were expecting. We weren't even sure if that was something that we wanted. But it didn't take us long to be filled with joy and excitement. But as quickly as those emotions came, they went away. And they were replaced with brokenness and pain and confusion. The byproduct of living in a fallen world. Why would God give us something we weren't asking for and then let us rejoice and be thankful and then only have it ripped away? Do you want to know what my flesh was crying out in that moment? My flesh was crying out, it's meaningless. It's meaningless, God. Why did you do that? Sleepless nights, diminished pleasure and normal activities, and inappropriate guilt would all be a part of what we would experience in the following weeks. But do you want to know what happened once we placed our hope in God? Our hope was grown exponentially. God revealed to us that we would only be truly comforted and truly healed through him. It created a longing in my soul for God to make all things new, a longing that I had never experienced before. Death was never a part of God's good plan. It came through sin. And once God reminded me of that, my hatred for sin grew as well. Oh, to see the day when it would no longer stain our world. It gave me a hatred for my own sin that when it touches, whatever it touches, it causes death. My love, hope, and trust in God are greater today because of that experience. I saw my wife become sanctified and look more Christ-like after going through what she went through. God has gotten more glory in our lives through this trial and he has used it greatly and he continues to use it. But you know what? We were still sad. We still had grief. We were still experiencing these things. It's not as though when God reveals these deep truths to you that you suddenly, your sadness and your grief, grief just poof away and now you're happy. It means that he taught us how to grieve in a godly way. He taught us how to be comforted by him and find joy in him all while we grieve our loss. We have not been promised a sad, free life. We have been promised an immeasurable hope, a secure future, and a God and Savior who will comfort us through any affliction. And it's wise to be sad about sad things. There's wisdom there. It's wise to be sad in proportion to the sad thing. How long are you going to let a mother grieve the loss of her child? Two months? Now, if it's been a few months since your hamster died and you're still in deep grief, we need to have some different conversations. I mean, that's just the reality. But it's wise to be troubled about troubling things 
But we have to be sad and troubled in proportion to the circumstance. Do you think Jesus was troubled proportionately in the Garden of Gethsemane? The sin of the world was about to be laid upon his shoulders. And the Gospels tell us that he was troubled. He was in deep distress. Do you think Jesus was saddened and grieved proportionately when his friend Lazarus was dead? He was. Our sinless Savior, our standard for spiritual and emotional and mental health was sweating blood because of what was going on in his heart and in his soul. You want to talk about a physical side effect of grief? Sweating blood. I can't, I can't claim that one. And this line between normal and disordered sadness has continued to get blurred. Look at what Charles Hodges says. He, he practiced psychiatry for years, and he's now in the biblical counseling world. He says, when you say I am depressed today, it does not mean what it meant 35 years ago. Before the 1980 revision of the DSM, you could not be diagnosed with major depression if you could tell why you were sad, if you could tell what happened to you, what you lost. We reserved the diagnosis of major depression for people who simply couldn't say why they were sad. In 1980, when they changed those criteria, they removed cause as a reason for sadness. What has happened as a result is 90% of the diagnoses of depression today are really what we would have called in the past normal sadness. 90%. So if depression is more than just feeling sad, and even feeling sad for an extended period of time, what exactly is it? Let's look at some biblical definitions or biblical examples of depression. Elijah, one of the great prophets, Elijah. As he is fleeing Jezebel, he grows weak and weary. Look at 1 Kings 19.4. It says, But he, Elijah himself, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life away, for I am no better than my father's. You know what God does in this instance for Elijah? <laughs> He doesn't tell him just, just to trust him. He doesn't remind him of the amazing miracle that was just done in chapter 18 when he defeated 450 false prophets of Baal. I mean, God had every right to remind him of this. Elijah, I just showed you that I am the one true God. I came down in fire when you called me. You're afraid of Jezebel? God doesn't say that. What does God do? This shows us so much how God cares for us and how he knows us. God gives him something to eat and something to drink. And it says that Elijah went in the strength of that food for 40 days. And then later, God addresses his heart. God provided for his physical need. Another example, Lamentations 3. I really wish we had time to read this whole chapter because it's beautiful. Starting in verse 13. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. 
my soul is bereft of peace. Listen to this. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. You're not going to hear that on an antidepressant commercial. (laughs) Did you notice the physical language that Jeremiah was using there? His kidneys are pierced. His teeth were grinding. Earlier in the chapter, he says that his flesh and skin were wasting away and his bones were, uh, were broken. I'm not saying that those things were literally going on, but there is something physical going on amidst his affliction. He says that he is continually remembering his affliction and his wandering. This is what he is focused on, and this is why his soul is bowed down within him. And then he moves from listening to his affliction, uh, listening to his affliction and listening to his wandering to focusing and calling to mind the steadfast love and mercy of the Lord. We have Jonah and Solomon and Cain despairing for life and saying that it would be better if they were dead. We have Psalm 88, which is one of the only Psalms that does not have an upward turn towards praise at the end. Which indicates that we don't always get answers. You're not always going to get answers from the Lord amidst your affliction. Now, we are about to look at how someone gets diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Okay. From the DSM. These are observations. These are descriptions of what someone might be experiencing, not describing cause. What I want you to, to do, though, as we, as we look at it, is to think about which of these might be biblical categories, which of these might be addressed by the Bible. So uh, let's look at it. Diagnosis, DSM, major depressive disorder. Five of the following symptoms have been present during the same two-week period and represent a change from previous functioning. Depressed mood most of the day, feel sad, empty, hopeless, markedly diminished interest in, uh, or pleasure in all, almost, or almost all activities, significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain, insomnia or hyperinsomnia, psychomotor agitation or retardation, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt, diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness, recurrent thoughts of death, recurrent suicidal ideation, without a specific plan or a suicide attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. Okay. Sorry, we've got to speed through that. Do you notice anything biblical and biblical categories that are there? Hopelessness? Diminished pleasure? You can go to the next slide, Logan. Feeling worthless? Excessive, inappropriate guilt? I would argue indecisiveness, recurrent thoughts of death. My point is, is that there's always going to be a spiritual aspect of depression, right? Depression is physical and spiritual. What happens in our body influences our souls, and what happens in our souls is going to have an impact upon our bodies. And what's going to happen if we try to treat things like being hopeless or worthless or inappropriate guilt 
without looking at them in the light of the gospel and the word of God? What's going to happen if we look at those things and try to address them without God, without the Holy Spirit, and without prayer? We're not going to be fully healed. You're not going to be living as God intended you to live through these things. And I'm not advocating for a quick fix through prayer or a Bible verse. I'm begging you to come to the feet of the one who created you and knows you and knows your problem more than anyone. And it goes the other way too. We don't want to neglect physical healing either. Depression is also cyclical. It often begins with a problem followed by a sinful response to that problem, which leads to a greater problem. Hopeless thoughts is going to lead to greater hopelessness. Failure to perform duties and normal responsibilities make one feel more guilty. And it makes you feel more depressed, and which in turn is going to make you less likely to perform your duties. It's a spiral. People who are prone to depression tend to cycle in and out of it and often takes a long time to fully come out. There's so much more to say, and we will say more in the next couple of weeks, and we will talk about how we respond to it and how to help someone else through it. And what I really, really hope that you didn't hear is that Ace hates medicine or Ace hates psychiatrists. That's not the case. If you're taking medicine, please continue to do so. If you're experiencing serious depression, please consult a psychiatrist. We'll talk about those things more as well. We're going to have to speed through anxiety. Um, I, I really hate that, but that's where we're at. Because I really don't want to have to address it next week, because next week we've got a lot to talk about. Um, anxiety. Uh, the, the key text here is, is Matthew 6. For, for time's sake, we're just going to look at verse 28. Jesus says, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they neither grow, toil, or spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus is equating anxiety with unbelief. You're focusing on the wrong things and not believing the right things. In Luke 10, 41, Jesus enters the home of Martha and Mary. Martha is distracted with serving while Mary sits at the feet of Jesus under his teaching. And Martha actually goes up to Jesus and says, are you, are you going to rebuke Mary? I need some help here. And, and Jesus answered her and said, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What made Martha's anxiety wrong? I mean, she was serving. That she, her object was, was a good thing. She was looking and concerned with temporal things, disproportionately to eternal things. Um, we don't have time to look at how the DSM um, diagnoses someone with generalized anxiety disorder. If you're interested to know that, please come talk to me. I'd be happy to share that with you. But there are two different aspects to anxiety when, I, um, when I've studied it and when I looked at the word. Anxiety as fear and anxiety as worry. I'll start with anxiety as fear. Fear is not always, is not always sinful. It's not always wrong. 
It's good to have a healthy respect for danger, and it's good to have fear as a protective device. We call this natural fear. It's not always sinful, but it is always the fruit and consequence of sin of living in a fallen world. But if fear as a protection device becomes an obsession, it becomes a sinful lack of trust in God. Sinful fear arises from unbelief, distrust in God, and we refuse to trust in God's protection. Fear becomes sinful when we fear man more than God. When temporal things are feared more than eternal things, when you want to control, when you want control or certainty. John Flavel, Puritan, says, the sinfulness of fear consists in its power to dispose and incline people to use sinful means to escape danger. We are to fear God. It's a religious fear. We have natural fear, sinful fear, religious fear. Proverbs 1, seven. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Oswald Chambers says, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. I really wish I could, I could tell you guys more. I'm, I'm chomping out the bit. I know it's time. Um, I'm, I'm almost done. Anxiety as worry. What, uh, let's look at what is not worry, okay? Because we can get our definitions a little mixed up. Worry is not proper care or proper concern that causes you to attend to business in a responsible way, okay? Worry is not planning or being prepared or planning for the future. Those are good things. Anxiety is not being troubled about troubling things like we already saw. The definition that I'm going to use is anxiety is overzealous concern about the future or worldly things. So legitimate care legitimate planning, legitimate thinking about the future becomes anxiety when your thoughts are focused upon changing the future, when your thoughts are unproductive, when it controls you, when it causes you to neglect other responsibilities, when you lose hope. We can boil anxiety as worry down to this, a fearful lack of trust in God. Now, you may define anxiety differently, and we can talk about that, and I would love to. I really would. But if anxiety is not natural or religious fear, if it's worry, then we have to call it sin, y'all. We have to call it sin. Why? Because it focuses what you do not have. It's a heart of ingratitude. It's being consumed and preoccupied with the wrong thing, namely ourselves and not the kingdom of God. It's unnecessary. It's unproductive. It's, it's unbelief. It robs you of time, it controls your mind, it wastes your energy, it damages your body, and it breeds laziness. The heart of anxiety looks ahead and fears things will not go your way. Why do we have to call this sin? Because if sin is not the problem, then Christ is not the remedy to the problem. If Christ is not the remedy, then you're never going to be truly healed and truly free. And you'll just be doing circles around your sin. And sin's going to give birth to more sin, and that's going to give birth to death. There is freedom in calling this sin because Jesus Christ died on the cross so we would be free from the bondage of sin to forgive you of your sins. There's freedom in calling this sin because the Holy Spirit helps to convict us of our sin and teaches us how to fight it. There's freedom in calling this sin because the entire Bible is a book about sinners and how they can be free. 
Jay Adams, there he goes again, my man. He says this about worry. It is absolutely crucial to recognize worry as sin. In sermons, I have asked, how many of you have problems with worry? Hands go up all over the congregation. And then I ask, how many of you have trouble with lying? Or adulterous thoughts? Or things like these? Few, if any, hands are raised. Why is this so? Because worry is the acceptable sin. People don't really believe it's sin. Or they would be ashamed of it as they are of these other sins. It's important to realize that worry is sin since until it is recognized as such, people will not become serious about eliminating it. They will go on grinning about it as if it were inevitable and nothing can be done about it. But once convinced that it is a sin against God, it must go. Take heart, sinner. Take heart, sinners. You who are anxious, you who are afraid, you have a creator, a savior, and a friend who cares for you. We have a great, great hope. We're going to talk more in the coming weeks about uh, how do we respond to these things? How do we live in light of these things? How do we help others through these things and children and suicide and things like this? So I hope you come back. I enjoyed being with you guys uh, this evening. Um, Please feel free to come talk to me if you have any questions. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is sufficient to discern the intentions and thoughts of our heart. We thank you that we have a savior who came near to us, who was incarnate, who lived among us, and lived like us, and struggled as we struggled, and was tempted as we are tempted, yet without sin. We thank you that we have this example and this standard and this friend who goes before us, who's now our mediator, pleads in our behalf. God, we pray that you would help us with these things, help us talk about these things, help us be open about these things, help us to know how to be sad, help us to turn our fears and our worries and our anxieties and our grief, help us to turn them towards praise amidst them. Give us grace as we experience these things. God, help us to love you through them. We love you, God. We praise you. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.